0: You may be seated. I invite you to join me in taking your copy of God's Word and turning with me this morning to the New Testament, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. As you turn there, let me also encourage you to turn to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 136. We're going to start with our first Thessalonian passage, but we're also going to look at Psalm 136 as well. Now, last Sunday, we finished up chapter 4 in our study of the book of Nehemiah. That's a good place for us to, to pause for the upcoming Advent season. We'll come back to that study in a new year. It has been mentioned, and we are already aware, that Thanksgiving is this week. And so, it's a good Sunday for us to pause and think about what it means when God's Word tells us to give thanks. We're going to look at this a little bit more in a few moments, but some, it's close to 200 times God's word in one form or another tells us to give thanks. It's like God's trying to give us a message, isn't it? If somebody tells you to do something 200 times, you probably want to do it. So what does it mean when God tells us to give thanks? So we're going to look at our passages in 1 Thessalonians and Psalm 136 this morning to guide us in our understanding of that. So hopefully by this point you have found Those passages, let me pray for us and let's come together to God's word. And Lord, we want to do this prayerfully. We don't want to do this on our own strength or on our own wisdom because in that we would fail. We aren't strong enough. We aren't smart enough to discern your word by ourselves. We need the gift of the spirit. We need the ministry of the spirits, the teacher to come and point us to you. To make us able to understand these words. To understand these truths and how they apply to our lives and to our faith. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Do that ministry here with us and among us, so that in all of this, the triumph God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may be glorified in our worship and in our lives. We praise now in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18 let's stand together now for the reading of God's word. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this, is will, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. A couple of weeks ago in the evening time, I was sitting on my phone and I was flipping through Twitter and I came across this tweet and it gave me a good chuckle because it's true. So I'll share it with y'all this morning. Hope you find it as funny as I did. Like any good dip, there are eight layers to a Southern goodbye about to leave warning, a we've got to go statement, hugs, walk into the driveway. One more conversation in the driveway, more hugs, talking while everyone's getting in the car, and then finally pulling out of the driveway. A little chuckle there because there's some truth to that, right? That's about what it takes to leave family's house. Thanksgiving, again being this week, I've been reminiscing about past Thanksgivings of uh, coming up from Sumter to Lancaster and going to my grandparents' house. And then we'd make our way over to Aunt Shirley's house and uh, we'd hear her, costs about, hear her complain about how much cheese cost for her to make her mac and cheese. We knew every year the cost of her making her mac and cheese. And then afterwards we would come back to our grandparents' house. And about six or seven, we knew we had to start heading home. So what did it mean? It meant about 30 minutes ahead of time, you need to tell them we need to get going because it takes about eight steps to leave. Goodbyes aren't always one word and then you're gone. It can be a process. and This isn't just a Southern thing. We see that with Paul sometimes at the end of his letters. He said what he's had to say. And it's taking him a long time to say goodbye. And that's where we find our passage this morning. He's trying to say goodbye to the Thessalonian church. But he's about on step five or six of the eight steps of saying goodbye. And so he's trying to write, wrap up this letter where he has encouraged new believers in their faith, exhorted all Christians for a godly living, and given them assurance about the eternal state of believers who had died. Now he's trying to say goodbye, and he's trying to get these last little words he's wanted to say. Maybe he's wanted to expound on them more, but he's run out of space, he's run out of time. So he's now trying to get those out there. These kind of one-liners, these things he wants to say before he says goodbye. And that's where we find our passage. He's on step six He's saying goodbye. He's saying to the Thessalonians, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. What a wonderful way to get to a goodbye, isn't it? These exhortations of encouragement for the Christian. But when we keep in mind the reason why Paul wrote this letter, how he's trying to say goodbye, that he is has, he has tried to encourage them in faith, to exhort them in godly living, to prepare for eternal life, then these last words become even more poignant, don't they? They're not just out of nowhere, they're coming from this place of encouragement, of exhortation, and of preparation. So he's watching everybody get in the car, he's saying, listen, as Christians, make sure you're always joyful in the Lord, because we have so much to be joyful for. But also remember to be a prayer warrior, you need to pray for all things at all times and for all reasons. As you put the car in reverse, he says, but also be thankful in all circumstances. He's encouraging us into into faith of and part of godly live or living godly lives. He's even encouraging us in in our preparation for eternal life, joy, prayer, thankfulness. This is how Paul is saying goodbye to the Thessalonian church. But you notice how he ends this list: for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. These aren't options. This is the Christian faith. This is what we should be. And this is what we should be doing because this is God's will for you and for me. And often as Christians, we find ourselves asking that question, what is God's will for my life? We're all sometimes asking that in a sort of specific way. What is God's will for where I go to college or, or what job I need to take or should I stay with this job? What is God's will for who I should date or who I should marry? Those are very specific, and those are good questions to ask. But we also see it in a broad sense. What is God's will for your life? For you to be joyful. It's a Christian. Paul tells us earlier, rejoice always. Again, I tell you, rejoice. That is the Christian life. What is God's will for you? To be joyful. To be a prayer warrior. That you pray at all times, for all things, for all reasons. It's God's will for you. He wants you to be a, He wants you to be a prayer warrior, but He also wants you to be thankful, and not just thankful for the good things. Thankful in all circumstances: the good, the bad, the beautiful, the ugly. Those things we love to happen to us. And those things we wish had never happened to us. As Christians, we're to be thankful in all circumstances. And there's so much that can be said about this list, but I want us to focus on that last part of teaching, that we are to give thanks in all circumstances because this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what does this mean? That sounds like a nice platitude, right? Right? That's, that's a nice Thanksgiving card. If you were to get it on Wednesday, open it up and inside, you know, on the front it has a picture of a, a pumpkin and, and other fall things. And you open up on the inside, it says, give thanks in all circumstances for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. And that's a nice, warm, fuzzy platitude, isn't it? But there's so much more to that. What does Paul mean? To so the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit, what does he mean when he instructs us to give thanks. And to give thanks in every circumstance because this is why God has created you. When God created you, he created me, he created us to be thankful in all circumstances. What does he mean by that? Well, this past Wednesday morning, I spoke at the Richard Wynn Chapel and we talked briefly about what it means to be thankful and I won't ask our students what, what else I've talked about. We won't, we won't put them on the spot. But I share with them these statistics about the concept of giving thanks in Scripture. We kind of briefly talked about it already. But in all the Bible, the concept of being thankful comes up 102 times in the Old Testaments and 71 times in the New Testaments. 103 in the Old, 71 in the New. So 173 times in the Bible, we are told in some form or another that we are to give thanks That has to mean something, doesn't it? Growing up, if your parents had to tell you to do something more than once, you're probably going to get in trouble. God has told us 173 times to give thanks. That has to mean something, doesn't it? It's as if God is trying to tell us something, isn't Now We we take that and we, we look at the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is one that has a good bit of focus on being thankful. And so in that we find that these specific commands are example of thanksgiving occurs about 36 times in 24 different psalms. To put it another way, one out of every six psalms pointedly reminds us to be thankful. So God's prayer book... God's worship book, what God's people would turn to to sing and to pray and to exhort one another. One out of every six psalms has something to do about being thankful. It's almost as if God is telling us we should be thankful. 173 times. One out of six psalms as if we should be thankful. As we try to understand this, we we need to also keep in mind, as we look at Paul's passage here, his exhortation, we need to keep in mind this, this hermeneutical principle. And that is, when we read the New Testament, the Old Testament is just right there, right behind the curtain. For some reason, and and, and there's reasons, we won't go into it, but beginning really in the 20th century church, we began to divide the Old Testament from the New Testament. The Old Testament was just for those weird Jews who lived in the Old Testament times, but we're the real Christians, we're the real American patriotic Christians, and we have the New Testament, and that's all we need. We've lost out on this hermeneutical principle that when we read the New Testament, what was their Bible? We go through the Gospels, and we go into the book of Acts, and we go into the epistles. What Bible did they have? They had the Old Testament Bible. That was their Bible. So when we, G- we see Jesus preaching the Gospels, what Bible is he preaching from? The 39 books of the Old Testament. When we go to the book of Acts, and they're going out, and they're planting the church, and the church is spreading. What, book, what, what, what Bible were they taking out under church planting endeavors? They were taking the Old Testament. Now, when we get to, to the later epistles, we find that the, some of the New Testament had been written, was being circulated. But when we read the New Testament, we find that right there behind it is the Old Testament. That's why Augustine famously said, the new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. See, he's just expressing the remarkable way in which the two testaments of the Bible are so closely interrelated with each other. That the key to understanding the New Testament is understanding the Old Testament. The Old Testament is pointing us forward in time, preparing God's people for the work of Christ in the New Testament. Now, why do I say all this? Because when Paul is ending up his letter to the Thessalonian church and he says, Give thanks to God or give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, there is very much an Old Testament flavor to it. This isn't Paul pulling something out of the vacuum. But Paul is an Old Testament scholar. He knows it backwards and forwards. When he had gone to Thessalonica and he was planning a church, what Bible was he using the 39 books of the Old Testament? So what Paul is basically saying to him is like, everything you have learned from the Bible, which at this point, up to this point, is the Old Testament, everything you have learned is to lead you to giving Thanks. Jesus Christ, we understand, and he has fulfilled the Old Testament and we preach about him, but the Bible's old we, we're preaching to Jesus from the Old Testament. So when he's telling them to give thanks, he's doing it very much with the Old Testament flavor. So with that in mind, remembering that one out of every six Psalms is about being thankful, let's look at one of those Psalms to get an idea of what Paul means when he says give thanks. In all circumstances. So if you ever, still have some of your Bibles open, turn over to Psalm 136. And if you turn there, you see it's one of the longer Psalms. It's, only, it's, it's about 26 verses. We're going to read just the first three verses of it to get a feel, an idea of what the Psalm is about. Beginning of verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Notice the theme here? We give thanks to God. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. So this psalm serves as a sort of manual for why you and I should be thankful We are to give thanks, we are to give thanks in all circumstances, because God's steadfast love endures forever. Now, this is, again, the psalmist is repeating this, he's saying it three times over, he's using different titles for God, but the the concept is still the same. Be thankful to God, be thankful for God, because his steadfast love endures forever. And it's from that foundational truth that the psalmist then, in the ongoing verses, begins to explore other aspects of God's steadfast love. But it all begins with giving thanks to God. And why do we give thanks to God? Because of his love of us and his love for us. The psalmist describes it as a steadfast love, which means it's resolute, it's firm. It's unwavering. Right? It's not a rollercoaster sort of love. It's not a teenage romance. Right? Where it burns hot and fast for a little bit and then just fades away. It's not a roller coaster of ups and downs and twists and turns. You don't know if you're going to survive it. And you don't know how it's going to end. No, this is a dependable love. It's firm. It's resolute. It's unwavering. Another way of saying it is when God says he loves you, you can bet your eternal soul on it. That's the steadfast love of God. When he says, I love you, then you can respond, okay, I'm going to place my eternal soul upon that love. So we need to understand what kind of love God has for us. Again, coming back to Thanksgiving, I'm a fat boy, I love this holiday. But it's one thing we come to Thanksgiving and we say, I love turkey. Turkey. But it's another thing to say that you love your family. It's one thing to say that you you love that that old family recipe for mac and cheese. It's another thing to say that you love your spouse. So when we talk about the steadfast love of God, when we talk about God saying he loves us, does he love us like he loves a good fried turkey? Our mac and cheese? Our our, our warm slice of, of, of apple pie with vanilla ice cream on top of it? We, we know the answer to that, right? We say, no, 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 God doesn't love us like that. He loves us more than that. But does he really? Do we really trust that? Do we really trust and believe that God loves us in that way? I think I've shared before, with, with each of our children, we, we have this game we play or thing we do, and we'll ask each other, how much do you love me? How much do you love dad or how much do you love Hannah or Patrick or mom? And the other one respond, I, I love you this much, right? And it's cute to see your children stretch their arms out to say, I, I love you as much as I can. So how much does God really love you? And how much does he really love me? If we were to ask God that question, how much do you love me? What would his answer be? I believe it was Dr. Jack Miller who said, God cannot love you any more than he does right now. That's kind of cryptic though, isn't it? What does it mean when God cannot love you any more than he does right now? We turn to the Gospel of John. We've seen in John 15 9 that Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. So there's our first clue. How much does God love us? Well, Jesus loves us in the same way as the Father loves Jesus. Think about that for a minute. Jesus loves you. And we're going to make this personal because it's a personal love. You take yourself. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves me in the same way as the Father loves Jesus. And how much does the Father love Jesus? He loves him as his only begotten son. It's a perfect love. It's an eternal love. It's a sinless love. There is no greater love than the love the Father has for the Son. And Jesus loves us in that same way as the Father loves the Son. And that's amazing, isn't it? And if we just stop there, then we would have reason to give thanks for an eternity. That Jesus, the second person to the on Godhead, loves me as much as the Father loves Him, that's amazing. But John says, hold on a second. There's more. We turn over to John 14. And Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So Jesus is explaining that he is the perfect representation of the Father as they are one. This is where our Trinitarian doctrine and understanding comes in. Three in one, one in three, same in substance, equal in power and glory. Jesus is God incarnate. So he is the perfect representation of the Father as they are one. Now, take all that and let's come back to the question. How much does God love us? Well, we think of it this way. If Jesus is the perfect representation of the Father, and Jesus loves us as the Father loves him, we can then conclude that the Father loves us in the same way as he loves Jesus. So it's not just the Son who loves us as much as he can, it's the Father who loves us as much as he can. That makes that truth even more astounding, doesn't it? It's not that the Father is the angry old grump and we need Jesus as the mediator to keep us away from the angry old grump. No, he is, the, he is the Father and we are the prodigal son. That God the Father loves you as much as He can. He loves you as much as He loves His own son. We're not the red-headed stepchild. No, we are loved as much as he loves Jesus Christ. That is the steadfast love of Psalm 136. How can you trust in the love of God? Because you know the Father and the Son loves you as much as they possibly can. As we sit here this morning as... Good ARPs. We got a little frozen chosen to us. This may be a little too charismatic for us. This may be too little lovey-dovey, and warm fuzzies for us, right? We can handle the sovereignty of God. We dig that. Give us predestination. woo Providence, we got it. But love? Yeah, it's a little baptisty. Listen to what John Calvin says when he writes about the Gospel of John. The love with which God loves is none other than that which he loved his son from the beginning. That we might be made partakers of the same love and might enjoy it forever. Doesn't John Calvin say it in such a good reformed way? He's saying the same thing. You cannot be loved any more than you are loved now by the Father and the Son because they love you as much as they love each other. But there's another piece of that puzzle, isn't it? And it's the Holy Spirit. And we're told the Holy Spirit is the teacher. He's the one who comes to teach us all this and to comfort us in this. And so when we understand the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, then we just plug him right into the puzzle, don't we? And what do we find out? That the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit cannot love you any more than they love you right now because it's the same love they have for each other. And so when John describes love and describes God as being God is love, he is looking to that perfect triune love. And he's saying this is the essence of love. This is where all good love flows from. And what we are reminded in the end of 1 Thessalonians, in Psalm 136, is that is the love that God has for you. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit loves you as much as they can in that perfect way. So, how can we not be thankful when we know this love? We tell each other we love each other, and most of the time we, we mean it. But when God says, "I love you," He means it from the depth of who He is as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is the foundation of being thankful. And we can only truly be thankful when we know this love. And we grow in thankfulness when we bask in this love of God. This is not a subjective love that is subject to sinful whims. This is an objective love of the one who is love. And in God's good providence, we are given this reminder on a yearly basis. You know, think about how our, our calendar works out. Thanksgiving is always the last Thursday of every November. And then the following Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. Which serves as our, as our preparation for Christmas. So we have this day, really, we should hopefully have a few days beforehand where we, we focus on being thankful. We're, we're centered on giving thanks. And that leads us right into Advent where we prepare for Christmas. For, excuse me, for that time when we remember that God so loved me. This perfect love, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit so loved me that the Father sent the only begotten Son to be born to save me from our sins. Save me from my sins, save you from your sins. So we, 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 we providentially have this calendar where we go and, and focus on thankfulness to one of the main reasons we had to be thankful, and that's the birth of Jesus, the Savior of sinners, God incarnate. And then what's the next major religious church holiday that comes after that? It's the Easter season, isn't it? So we have this, we have this time of being thankful and then remain, being reminded of why we should be thankful. Because Jesus Christ was born to save us from our sins and then we are led to how he saved us from our sins and it's by dying on the cross that the one who so loved you, that perfect love of the Trinity, how the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father and how the Spirit loves the Son, the Son loves the Spirit. That perfect love is what was loved for you that put him upon the cross. So when we come to thanksgiving, we are providentially given this calendar where we are reminded of this love. This love that then leads us to understanding this truth that we understand in Galatians 4. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son to our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. In my world, there are two rock stars. In the music world, there's more than that. But in overall life, there are two rock stars. Those are missionaries, and those are people who adopt children. When you stop and think about both those callings, those are amazing callings. But think about the calling of adopting a child. Taking someone who is not yours and loving them as your own. And when you see an adopted family do that well, it will melt your heart. And we are told in the gospel that steadfast love that endures forever brings us into the family of God. God loves us so much, he cannot leave us as orphans. And we're not second best. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He's not the, 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 the blonde hair, blue-eyed favorite child and we're the red-headed stepchild. Nothing against redheads. It says here, so you're no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God, we become co-heirs with Christ. That is how much we are loved. This is why we are Thankful. This is what fuels our thankfulness as Christians. And so when Paul at the end of Thessalonians says, give thanks in all circumstances, this is what he means. There are other things, of course, we need to be thankful for. Family and, and home and health and friends. All these wonderful blessings that come from the Lord. But we know this. Take away all of that, Take away family. Take away home. Take away health. And we can still be thankful because of the steadfast love of God for us. He cannot love you anymore. He loves you right now because he loves you in that perfect triune love. That is how Paul tells the Thessalonians to give thanks in all circumstances. So let me encourage you this week to take time with your family during Thanksgiving celebrations, and talk about what it means to be thankful. There's an old hymn that says, count count out your blessings, count your blessings, count them one by one. Do that. Be reminded of all the good things God has given to you. But make sure it is centered upon the glory of the steadfast love of God for you. He cannot love you any more than he does because he loves you in that perfect try and love and that is how we can be thankful people let's pray